so the Bible is a complicated mixture of historical theological analysis and interpretation written through the lens of a highly patriarchal society. Um, you are, the Bible itself is implicated in the problem. The Bible gives limited attention to women's or women's perspectives and stories and laws, which all reflect patriarchal cultural norms. Biblical stories and laws also disrupt the male-centric world with strong women who speak, lead, seek God, and are valued for their words. But through the history of the church, readers with their own patriarchal assumptions have often missed these disruptions. Can you expand a bit more on why the Bible itself is implicated in the problem? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Karen Reeder. She's a professor of New Testament and the co-coordinator of gender studies at Westmont College. She has authored several books, including The Enemy in the Household and The Samaritan Woman's Story. Dr. Reeder, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for the invitation to be here. Now, I'm not going to lie, that is a fascinating intersection, (laughs) New (laughs) Testament and gender studies. Um, So before we get to the book, tell us a little bit more about, you know, what got you interested in not only those two fields, but, you know, merging those two fields together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
Okay, when I was a kid in church and I was bored, my mother would always pass me a Bible and tell me to read for a while. And I was always really drawn to the stories of women in the Bible. So I must have read the books of Esther and Ruth so many times as I sat through um, church services as a child. Um, I gravitated towards those books because I wanted to hear women's stories and they're the ones that are named for women, right? So I knew I would be hearing women's stories in those books. I think that I kept coming back to that as I got into biblical studies as an academic discipline. Um, thinking about how there aren't that many representations of women in scripture, the ones that are there are often harder to find. Um, and the ways that women are represented or the ways that they're interpreted in the church are not always very charitable, we might say, to the women um, in the stories. And that matters for how women see themselves in the church today. So as I've gotten deeper and deeper into my own academic work, I've really tried to bring out the ways um, that gender comes into both how what the biblical text says, how it challenges us, but also how we come to the text as interpreters. Um, yeah, so it is an interesting combination. Um, gender studies is not always seen as a field that um, sort of meshes well with biblical studies, but I actually do think that there are important connections there um, and things that are really valuable and challenging to explore. Well, so much of that is expressed um, in this new book on the Samaritan yeah. woman's story. This book re-examines this fascinating figure from John's gospel. Um, you see her story as the intersection of gender, sex, sin, but also abuse and objectification mm -hmm. and horrific sexism. Um, why the Samaritan woman? What, what drew you to her? I have been engrossed by this story for so long. Um, I would say I really love the story in John 4. Um, in my reading of the story, we see a woman who is smart. She is theologically informed. She's really incisive. She has a long conversation with Jesus, the longest conversation between anyone and Jesus in the Gospel of John. Um, and at the end of her story, she becomes an evangelist, right? She goes and preaches the gospel, <laughs> preaches about Jesus to her community. Um, I see her as such a fantastic figure who models what a good disciple should be in the gospel of John and also models leadership for the church. Um, and of course, that's not often the way the church has taught her story. Instead, teachers have tended to focus, preachers have tended to focus in on the report about her marriage history um, and use that as the centerpiece for her story. So in coming to this book, I really wanted to help readers see the woman, the Samaritan woman in a different way to see this strong character that I think the gospel of John is presenting her as. Um, yeah, so I came to this book both from my own desire to tell the Samaritan woman's story well, but also to maybe correct or redirect some of the misapprehensions that the church has so often had about the woman's story. Um, 
Yeah, I just, I really love the Samaritan woman. I think she is such a powerful figure and someone we should be celebrating. And and I was excited to have the opportunity in this book to celebrate her story. Well, before we get to um, your re-examination of her, uh, one of the brilliant aspects of the book, um, and ultimately we want people to buy the book, right? Um, <laughs> is you kind of look at the more traditional, I hate to use that term, Mm-hmm. the traditional interpretations just for lack of a better term of who this woman is and how she should mm-hmm. be viewed and if we can walk through some of those uh, beginning with uh, Tertullian yeah so Tertullian way back at the end of the second century beginning of the third century he's the earliest Christian interpretation of the Samaritan woman that we have recorded um, and he flat out calls her an adulterer and a prostitute. (laughs) And those representations of the woman basically follow her through church history up to today. So you still hear this, um, this representation of the woman. In fact, I was speaking here locally in Santa Barbara at a church group um, a few weeks ago, and there was one gentleman in the audience who just kept reminding me over and over through my whole talk that the Samaritan woman was clearly a sinner because of her marital history. And that's really what Tertullian um, all the way back in the third third century was emphasizing that she's been married too many times. She lives with a man who's not her husband. That means she is a sexual sinner who needs to repent of her sin um, in order to receive salvation. And for Tertullian, that was the important point that we should be taking away from her story. He said other things about the Samaritan woman. He was impressed that she had this conversation with Jesus and that Jesus revealed himself to her. But he used her as an example of sexual sin in the church. Um, And he used her story to call people to repent of sexual sin, um, to not get married too many times, right? Tertullian was really concerned with that that issue. Um, Following after Tertullian, while we do continue to hear a few interpreters remind us that the Samaritan woman had this long conversation with Jesus, that she was theologically smart and could converse with Jesus, just over and over again, interpreters continue to return to the fact of her sin or their perceptions of her sin to say that, you know, Clearly, um, if she'd been married so many times, then her husbands must have divorced her because she was committing adultery, um, because she was a disobedient wife. John Calvin added that particular tidbit to her story. Um, She was mouthy and rude, therefore, to Jesus. So as we move farther into the history of interpretation in the church, the fact that the woman has this long conversation with Jesus, that she is theologically smart through the conversation, that kind of starts to fade away. So by the time we get to John Calvin in the Protestant Reformation, Calvin is referring to her as a really rude woman, someone who was abusive to Jesus, um, really mouthy. um, And that particular sort of character smear also persisted after the Protestant Reformation. So all the way through more recent interpretations of the woman, we continue to hear her disparaged and um, not 
Yeah, just basically not given very much respect. <laughs> yeah, so the first half of the book, I do explore several different periods of interpretation. So the early church, um, the Protestant Reformation, that early period of the Protestant Reformation, and then the church today, and what do we continue to hear in sermons and Bible studies um, in the modern church. And it's basically not good. Um, the Samaritan woman is vilified. Um, the fact of her multiple marriages kind of becomes the lens through which interpreters view her entire story and her character. Yeah, I was going to say there's John Calvin, which you mentioned, and then there's the other John that fancies himself the next John Calvin, which is John Piper, <laughs> who is a, yes. had a tendency yeah. to use this woman, um, you know, to continue a, a lot of abusive patriarchal narratives um, yeah. within the church today. Um, yeah, yeah. And that the connection, I think, there um, between the way the Samaritan woman is depicted and then how women might be treated in churches, uh, both historically and today, I think that is um, it's a really important point to consider for us to say, how do we teach about women in scripture and how might those teachings actually impact the experiences of women in our churches today? Hmm. Well, let's, let's go a little deeper there. Um, you wrote the seductive sexualization of women in the Bible teaches a message about women in the church. They're interesting or worthy of attention only with respect to sexuality. Um, you go on to write that the minimalization, the limitations and sexualization creates space for the victimization of women. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. Yeah, so this connection um, comes out of my reaction to the Church 2 movement over the past few years. So the Church 2 hashtag is a social media movement um, to give space to women and men who have been victimized in the church, who have been um, victims of sexual assault in the church, um, to share their stories. Um, it really started, of course, in the fall of 2017 with the Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement that grew out of those allegations. Um, as I listened to the stories that women and some men were telling as I saw how churches were reacting to those stories, I was really angry. Um, I'm still angry um, about the what we have allowed to happen in the church, right? That um, we have not made the church a safe space for all people, um, that situations of abuse do happen in the church. And when they do happen, we don't always react well and support the victims. Um, instead, we try and protect the institution almost um, against allegations. And we've seen that uh, it's pretty well established pattern, I think, that we can see in a number of different churches that have had allegations come up. Um, yeah, so as I was thinking more about how that situation has happened in the church, where it where it developed and how it might be supported by some of the ways we operate as the church. Um, I kept coming back to the way we interpret women's stories in scripture. And there is a real pattern of 
we have a woman in scripture, um, the Samaritan woman, Mary Magdalene, the woman who anoints Jesus' feet and wipes them with her hair, um, Bathsheba, um, just over and over and over again. We have these stories of women who are interpreted through the lens of sex. So Mary Magdalene is remembered as a prostitute who repented and became part of the followers of Jesus. The woman who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair is traditionally interpreted as a prostitute. Um, Bathsheba is a seductress who bathed knowingly in the sight of the king. Um, when we hear the stories told in these ways, I think that it gives us the perception that yeah, um, women are only interesting when they're doing something sexual. And that is a perception that is reinforced by the way women are represented in media around us, right? In advertisements or in film or um, television shows. So we get that message over and over again. Um, the danger that I see is when that is the way we see women in scripture, that's also going to be the way that we see women in our churches. And I think that that connection, it may seem a little bit strange or shocking to say that, but I think that it's actually played out in um, some of the stories of the allegations in the church to movement. Um, and even in the ways that we teach about sexuality in our churches. So I'm thinking here about um, that the biblical metaphor of stumbling stones and how women are often warned that they are stumbling stones to the men around them, right? So you need to make sure that you're wearing really concealing clothing, you're covering up your body, you're not being, um, you're not trying to draw attention to yourself um, by the way you speak or present yourself in, in a church or in youth group. Um, but actually, if you go back to those texts where Jesus talks about the stumbling stones, he's not saying that the person you're looking at is the stumbling stone. He says, your own eye is the stumbling stone. Your own hand is the stumbling stone, right? So we should be guarding our own eyes, our own hands, not the bodies of other people um, in that sense. Yeah, so any, this is a long wandering response to your question. But yes, I think that the way that we have sexualized women in our interpretation of scripture has spilled over into the ways that women are seen in our churches as, um, as sexualized beings, as objects of sexual attention. Um, and that has really opened the door or allowed for abuse to happen in Christian contexts. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. 
please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This episode is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. Youth Theology Network is your resource for helping high school students take their next most faithful step. Their online hub will provide you with resources for and by leaders helping high school youth discover their purpose. 100 plus vocational discernment programs across the U.S. to help students explore their call and impact stories to remind you of why this work matters. Like you, Youth Theology Network is dedicated to seeing students live out their purpose, passion, and calling. Connect with us to learn more on how you can partner together to support the next generation of leaders by following us on Facebook or Instagram or by visiting youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. So the Bible is a complicated mixture of historical theological analysis and interpretation written through the lens of a highly patriarchal society. Um, you are, the Bible itself is implicated in the problem. The Bible gives limited attention to women's or women's perspectives and stories and laws, which all reflect patriarchal cultural norms. Biblical stories and laws also disrupt a male-centric world with strong women who speak, lead, seek God, and are valued for their words. But through the history of the church, readers with their own patriarchal assumptions have often missed these disruptions. Can you expand a bit more on why the Bible itself is implicated in the problem? Yeah, so it's both the beauty and the pain of the Bible, I think, is that it was written by people like us, by humans who were enmeshed in their own cultural backgrounds, their own languages, um, their own assumptions about the world. And it's amazing. It's incredible that God used these people to speak God's words to the world and to preserve God's words for the world. Um, but it also means that when we read the Bible, we have to keep the, the cultural context, the historical situations that these authors were writing in, in mind, um, and use those, those contexts, those backgrounds as a lens to kind of separate out and analyze and understand what is even happening in the text. Um, so to use the Samaritan woman as an example, if we could come back to her marriages, um, the author of John's gospel would have had certain understandings of what marriage meant, of 
how a marriage was created and how a marriage ended um, would have had certain understandings about why a woman would get remarried after the end of a previous marriage, or even why she might be in a situation where a formal marriage was not possible as in her, her sixth relationship. Um, the author doesn't tell us all of that information, though, because the author's assuming we as readers know it all. Uh, but since we're reading it 2000 years after it was written, <laughs> we've lost a lot of those those cultural frameworks. And because we've lost those frameworks, um, the background that the author is assuming, when we come to the text, we bring our own frameworks with us her own cultural understandings of what marriage is, how a marriage might end, why a person would get remarried after the end of a marriage. Um, yeah, so, so that's one level of sort of seeing the, um, the embeddedness of the biblical text, both within its own historical circumstances and then our own embeddedness as readers when we're coming to the text. And one of the things we have to recognize as we're reading the Bible, the cultures that these authors came from were all patriarchal. And we do see disruptions of, of some of the patriarchal um, patriarchal assumptions in various biblical texts. But the text as a whole, it does represent a patriarchal patriarchal cultural um, worldviews and legal structures um, and social structures. So we have to remember that as we're reading the text and think through then, okay, is the Bible telling us that this patriarchal social system is the way that it should be? Or is it telling us this patriarchal social system is the way that it was and God is working through that even if it's not the way that society should be right so there's um there's sort of a distinction there to be drawn between the world the authors knew um and the world maybe we could say what the kingdom of God should be like I would argue that the patriarchal I'm having trouble with that word today. <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's not only that patriarchal, you know, as I have a difficult time saying it too, it's just it's hard to also stomach patriarchy. So yes, <laughs> yeah, <I get> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes absolutely. <laughs> and I would say that so many times through the biblical story, we do see challenges to that patriarchy patriarchal worldview um, and attempts to challenge and change it um, and present a better vision that is more equitable, more just for all people. Um, I come back a lot to Galatians 3.28, right? Sort of Paul's great proclamation of, of equality in the church. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female. There is no enslaved or free um, you are all one in Christ. You have the same identity in Christ. And that flattens out some of those hierarchical um, assumptions of the social world of the time. Well, well let's go there. Um, so how should we see this woman, not today, but how should we see this woman for who she really, truly was? Um, and, and what kind of system was she a product of? Yeah, so... She is a woman from a village in Samaria. So she was part of the Samaritan people, which um, 
you have to go back to the return from exile in the Old Testament. When the Jews who had been in exile came back, they found other people who worshipped God who were had never left the land. And the Jews who returned from exile uh, sort of came into conflict with these people who had stayed behind. And that's where we get the start of the Samaritans. So from that very early period, um, we have two different groups of people who are worshiping God. The Samaritans worshiped God, lived according to the law of Moses, um, but they had their own temple, their own system in Samaria, and they didn't have a lot of interactions with the Jewish people. So there are some tensions between the two people groups. So the Samaritan woman lived in this village at the base of the mountain where the Samaritans worshiped God in the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. Um, we don't know what her sort of economic background was. She went to the well herself to get water. So that might mean she was from a poorer household that didn't have someone to send. Um, but we don't know. Maybe she just wanted to take a walk and get out of the house for a while. So she went to get the water herself. Um, what we do know about her is that she was smart, right? So she goes out to the well. She meets this stranger. She recognizes that he's Jewish, and when he asks her for water, she immediately brings up the divide between their people. So this story is really about that ethnic divide between the Jews and Samaritans. Um, she and Jesus have this conversation that dives into the roots of that divide. Through the conversation, the woman refers to the fact that our father Jacob dug this well, our being the Samaritan people who claim Jacob as their own ancestor, who are claiming by that to say, this land is ours, it belongs to us, God gave it to us, we are the people of God. She talks about the fact that the Samaritans worship at the temple on Mount Gerizim um, while the Jews are worshiping in Jerusalem. And that's a big divide between the Jews and Samaritans in the first century is where to worship God um, and where you're worshiping God that is connected again to who you are as the people. So if the Jews claim that you can only worship God in Jerusalem, the Samaritans say you can only worship God on Mount Gerizim, then they're both making claims to be the people of God um, based on the place of their worship. <laughs> um, through this conversation with Jesus, then we see the Samaritan woman knows what's going on. She knows the history. She knows theology. She knows her Bible. Um, she knows the stories of her ancestors. Um, and she also knows something about Jesus, the Jewish people, and the claims that they're making and how those claims differ from her own understanding of her own identity. Um, then we have this little bit about her marital history. That does tell us important things about her. Um, I think it does not tell us that she's a sinner, however. So here's what I want to argue. Marriage in the first century was not about love. It was not about finding a partner to spend the rest of your life with and have a family with um, and all of that that we have put on marriage today. In the first century, marriage was an economic arrangement between two households. The Samaritan woman, her first marriage probably would have happened when she was around 14 or 15 years old. Her father would have arranged that marriage for her for the economic benefit of the father's household. 
Um, maybe that marriage ended with the death of her first husband because men tended to be significantly older than women um, when they got married. Maybe that marriage ended in divorce, right? Which could be because her father, the Samaritan woman's father, saw a better connection for her with someone else. And so he wanted to divorce her from that husband so that he could marry to her to another household where his own family would, would get better advantages. We don't know how her marriages ended or, um, or what had happened in her life to bring her to the tragic state of having had five marriages, which is an incredibly large amount. Um, I would say that we have here a pretty tragic story that Jesus is recognizing she's had a really hard life and she's been a survivor and persisted through, through the ends of multiple marriages, through marrying into multiple families for her own survival and the survival of her household. Um, her final situation where she's living with a man who's not her husband, and that's often been where we get accusations of sin lodged against the woman, that actually may not be the case. Because again, marriage was about economic benefits for two households. Um, it wasn't about having a committed um a committed family life or a committed relationship or something like that that we might think of today. Um, this last relationship that she's in may have been something like an informal marriage or a common law marriage. Perhaps there were legal restrictions that meant that she could not marry this man legally. And so they lived together. They had a held a household together, um, but they didn't have the benefit of legal marriage. Again, I would say that shows us the woman is a survivor who is making sure that she is protected because she, as a woman, she needs to be connected to a male-headed household in order to have um, access to economic resources, um, to legal resources as well. Um, yeah, but it doesn't mean that she's a sinner by any means. And in fact, through this whole story in John 4, the word sin is never mentioned. And so when we read sin into the story, we are importing something that the author does not want us to hear necessarily, right? Because if the author wanted us to think this story was about sin, talking about sin would be a natural way to make sure we got the point. Now, Karen, I can't think of a single time in Christian history in which people reading scripture have interjected their own thoughts and opinions and worldviews yeah. into what they're... <laughs> no, indeed. Surely yeah. not. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you could take us a little deeper into Jesus in this story. Um, you know, how is this re-examination of this woman, how should it also be a re-examination of Jesus' words and his interaction with her? Yeah, so mm, he is um, engaging the woman over and over. So he doesn't turn away with her initial um, sort of rejection of the connection, right? So when he asks her for water and she doesn't offer it to him, he continues the conversation and finds ways to keep the conversation going. 
um, he actually ends up offering her water instead. So he's sort of turning the tables on the traditional biblical narrative where a single man shows up at a well and asks a woman for water. The woman gives him water and then they get married. Um, in this story, instead, we have Jesus asking for water. The woman says no. And then Jesus offers her water instead. So he's reversing um, the traditional narrative there, which is really fun to play with. Um, he persists in continuing the conversation, uh, even through the difficulties, I would say, of talking cross-culturally like this, of talking about um, ethnic difference and how this how this divide between the Jews and Samaritans happened. Um, he's also really invitational through this story. So by the end of the story, he stays with in this village for several days. He talks to these people. They become followers of Jesus. And at the very end of the story, the people of the Samaritan village recognize Jesus as the savior for the whole world, not just for the Jews, not even just for the Samaritans, but for everyone. And so the story in John's gospel, very early in John's gospel, is really revealing to us that Jesus is not just a figure who is significant within Judaism. Um, this is a figure who matters for the whole world. Um, yeah, so I think that um, the fact that the story is so important in John's gospel is in part because of who it's revealing Jesus to be. And while my book is really focused on the Samaritan woman and her part of the story and sort of drawing out this revelation of who Jesus is, um, obviously for the gospel of John, the importance is on Jesus and who we understand Jesus to be through this conversation with the Samaritan woman. Fun fact, the Samaritan woman is the first person in John's gospel to hear Jesus say, I am, right? Which mm -hmm. is that great declaration of Jesus' identity as God incarnate. Um, he tells the Samaritan woman first. I think one of the more fascinating quotes from the book, um, you wrote, without the lens of sin blinding us, we can see her story more clearly. She expresses wisdom, thoughtfulness, and awareness through her conversation with Jesus. She is an intelligent partner for Jesus in a way that Nicodemus is not. Mm -hmm. In this sense, the story challenges the values we place on status and identity. I wonder if you can unpack for us, um, as we see this woman in a new way, um, in what ways can she be a, a model for the church today, for, for Christ followers, uh, for a sense of uh, gender equity within our congregations and denominations? Yeah, yeah. I think one really important factor here is to be sure that we see this woman as a model for Christian discipleship, period. Um, I think too often we have a tendency to talk about women in scripture to women, right? So women, women's Bible studies, women's Sunday schools, women's discipleship groups, they will do studies of the women in scripture while the men will talk about the men in scripture or in a church as a whole with men and women, we tend to prioritize the men of scripture. But actually John's gospel, I would argue, wants us to see the Samaritan woman as a model for women and men to follow in being disciples of Jesus. 
Um, and in that sense, we see in her story um, a woman who is not afraid to ask questions, a woman who is informed, who has clearly, you know, studied, understood, come to knowledge of of biblical tradition, of theological tradition. Um, we see a woman who goes out and preaches to others about Jesus. And I think that those are things that John's gospel wants all of us to pick up and follow. I would say also specifically with respect to this woman, um, we're seeing a woman in conversation with Jesus who then becomes an evangelist and witnesses to Jesus in her community. And that's important to recognize, too, that this story is, is representing women as a woman, specifically um, as, um, as a leader for the Christian community. It's interesting through the history of interpretation that that element of her story doesn't get picked up on by male interpreters, but it does get picked up on by women interpreters. So starting in the late Middle Ages, there are a whole series of women interpreters of John 4 who identify the Samaritan woman as a model for their own leadership and say she was the first preacher of the gospel of Jesus in in the New Testament. And holy cow, doesn't that mean that women should be preaching the gospel of Jesus today? And so we see a number of women through the history of the church who, who claim the Samaritan woman as their ancestor in preaching and in leading in the church. Um, yeah, so both preaching the story to men and women to see the Samaritan woman as a model for how to be a follower of Jesus, but also seeing in her story an early example of a woman who spoke publicly, who taught others about Jesus. Um, that's an important facet of her story, too. What's your hope for your readers? Mm, I hope that they'll meet the Samaritan woman again, <laughs> that they'll see her on her own terms as as a really um, fascinating woman with a fascinating life story who who made a difference in her community um, by by recognizing who Jesus was herself and then by sharing that with other people with the people in her community. Um, I also hope that they'll start to use this one example of how we have perhaps misinterpreted the Samaritan woman through time to question interpretations of other biblical stories, to go back to some of the other women of scripture and wonder if perhaps we've done them a disservice too, if perhaps there are other messages we should be hearing from their stories. Our guest is Dr. Karen Reeder. The book is The Samaritan Woman's Story. You can follow more of Karen's work by checking out her work at her school website, along with visiting ivpress.com. Uh, Karen, it's a joy to speak with you. Uh, thank you for calling us to challenge the systems and interpretations that minimize, sexualize, and silence women in the church today. Thank you very much. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. 
It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 